0: Good morning. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. In preparing for the message, I found myself quite convicted, which is as it should be. And quite ashamed as I dredged up memories of old. I'm going to share some of those with you this morning. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I've been given verses 7 through 13. Now, verse 7, I was a little perplexed at, because it seems to me to be talking about the portion that goes before it. So I take that as from the Lord that He wants me to include that. So you may may have heard about these three um, object lessons, or parables, if you will, we want to... Look at them again and see how it ties in with the whole passage. Paul says in verse 7 Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, what did he just say? Well, in verse 3 and 4, he talked about a soldier. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And what sticks out to me is the part where it says suffer hardship. I don't know about you, but I like a good war movie. And the old war movies that I was used to watching when I was a kid with my family are different than the war movies now. You know, the war movies of old, um, they weren't all blood and guts. They weren't all impossible fighting machines with these incredible weapons. They weren't push-button affairs from some uh, video console um, with a missile. But they were real people in real-life battles. And the battles tended to be, seemed to me closer to the historical view than what we see today. If we see something close to the historical view today, it's horrendous. And maybe it's very real. A lot of blood and guts. But One thing that I'm reminded of when I watch those war movies, it's nothing like the real thing. It's like when I was younger. I used to like watching Tarzan movies. Something about the jungle appealed to me. And so when I went to Brazil and we got to visit and go into the jungle, I found out it's a lot different than what looks like on the screen. Two major respects. One, the heat. You don't feel the heat watching the TV screen. You you don't see Tarzan sweating. (laughs) The other one is the bugs that like to feast on you. So what you see on the television isn't actually real-life experience. And then you realize, wow, what a wrong picture of what it's like in the jungle. Same thing when we watch war movies. We get a wrong idea. We really do. What people really go through when they're fighting um, in battle. And we have a more realistic view, perhaps today, but I was driving home yesterday and it was pouring. It was pouring. What is it like to be a soldier in the mud when it's pouring rain? Dirty job. Dirty job. Being a soldier is not easy. Um, and at one time, I had aspirations to be a soldier coming out of high school. I wanted to go into the Navy and be in a, a SEAL, go to basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And that was the big macho image, and I thought, yeah, I'd be good at that. <laughs> and I tested when I was about ready to go to, to, to Japan, and they liked how good a swimmer I was. I used to play water polo, and so they helped me with the rest of the test there coaching me on. But when I got into Bud's training, I found out something. It wasn't all what I thought it was. It's tough. Fourth weekend's hell week. They call it hell week because they keep you awake for seven days straight, 24 hours a day. <laughs> you don't sleep. There are people hallucinating during that training. If you do something wrong and they say they want to see a sugar cookie, because it was right on the beach, Silver Strand, San Diego. If they want to see a sugar cookie, that means they want you to, in your clothes, go jump in the ocean and roll back and then come back in your seat You finish out the day like that with all that sand grinding on you. To get out was a 16-mile time run in the sand. I lasted about a week before I decided, you know what, it's not really worth it. Not really worth it. Why was I there? You know. It sort of reminded me when I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, there was a, young, a lot of young people with great aspirations to serve the Lord, wanted to be missionaries, wanted to do this, wanted to do that. You know, Different motivation, this was the Lord. But same excitement, wanting to do something with your life. It's a lot harder than what you think at the beginning. And Paul is encouraging Timothy here. I mean, Paul's on his last leg of his life, let's say. He's in prison. He's not going to get out. And Timothy, perhaps he's shrinking back at what he's seeing. Paul, in prison, suffering, in chains. And yet Paul is egging him on. Suffer with me. He's not saying, hey, watch out for this, watch out for that, don't end up here. He's saying, suffer with me. Come, suffer with me. Now, that's an unpopular message, isn't it? We want to think about that. We don't have a real idea of what it's like. I think we get a wrong idea of what it's like to fight the spiritual warfare. John MacArthur has a good point. Let me read it. Christianity is not a spectator event. Christianity is not a game. Christianity is war. It's hard for us to understand that because we live in an environment that, while philosophically is hostile to Christianity... Legally and politically, it's not, not in this country. And so we're not constantly being battered by the system, nor do, we give, nor do we have to give our lives in standing up for the faith. May I suggest to you that it's harder for us to be all that a soldier should be in this environment, because we tend to fall to the low levels of Christian life that our society allows. Our society does not demand heroism. It doesn't demand martyrdom. It doesn't demand massive sacrifice. Being a Christian won't keep you out of the university. It won't alienate you socially in every area. It won't keep you from getting a good job. It won't restrict how much income you have. It won't get you thrown into jail. And therefore, for you to be heroic in this environment is indeed a difficult thing. It takes tremendous a tremendous amount of personal and internal commitment. It would be easier to be heroic in an oppressed, persecuted society where heroism was forced upon you than it is to be spiritually heroic in the kind of Christianity we experience. And so we tend not to even recognize that we're in a warfare. There's a certain amount of truth to that if we, read the, if, if we read, listen to the news, we watch what's going on on the Internet. There are people in the world today that feel so strongly about what they believe, as fanatical as it may seem, that they're willing to strap a bomb to their body to get people's attention. There are people where bombs are falling every day. They know warfare, physical warfare. But there's also a spiritual warfare going on. And I think oftentimes we forget that. We forget that because of the protection that we have, because of the culture that we live in. And I imagine if we were in the midst of that environment, we'd be scared to death. We would understand what they go through, living in terror day by day. And that's a real solid example of the spiritual warfare that we should be involved in. So, being a soldier, Paul's saying, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. He also uses the the example of an athlete. If anyone competes as an athlete he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The word that sticks out to me is the word compete and rules and rules. It takes training. It takes discipline. We teach welding in our school and we have some simulated weld simulation or uh, simulators, welding simulators, they're very expensive. They're made um, by a company that uh, developed them for Lincoln Electric, and I'm going to demo them in the apprenticeship conference, uh, council conference meeting in Monterey. And the reason why we use these simulators is because to learn how to weld, let's say, stick welding, Jake, you you know all about this, (laughs) Um, there's ingredients to a good weld. You hold a stick, which is an electrode, and electricity is going to pass into it through to your material, and it's going to burn. But what goes into the right ingredients in a weld is, one, the settings. How many amps are you using? Okay. Um, what's your travel angle? What's your work angle? What's your contact to work distance between your stick and your metal? How fast you go? So there's different ingredients. And so this simulator, what it will do, it'll measure all those ingredients you got a hood on your, your head, and you're actually seeing the thing well. It's got the speakers up. It's making this snap, crackle, pop sound, and you're laying a bead down on metal, and then you have a button that cleans it up, and then it will grade you on those ingredients. And you can isolate those ingredients to work one ingredient at a time, your speed. And if you want, there's a tool that you can bring up that has a speedometer. If it goes in the yellow, you're going too slow. If it goes in the red, you're going too fast. If it's from the green, that's where you keep it. So you go as fast as a needle stays in the green. No slower, no faster. And, and pretty soon you got it down. Okay, now i got my speed down. Now I want to work on my working angle. This way. Travel angle. This way. And when you get all those scores up above 95, we let you practice on the real thing. It saves a whole lot of metal. <laughs> saves a whole lot of electricity, and it saves a whole lot of electrodes or rods. So what are they learning? They're learning muscle memory. Their muscles learn what speed to go to, what angle to hold it to on both planes, the contact to work distance, and so they're learning muscle memory. So an athlete has to learn muscle memory. How many times does a batter have to swing a bat to learn muscle memory? How many times a pitcher, does a pitcher have to throw a ball to learn the muscle memory? A golfer, it's very important to have a consistent swing is the key to being a good golfer. Same thing with archery. Consistent shot. It's easy to correct if you're consistent. If you correct, you're inconsistent. And there's some ingredients there. What you're learning is it's discipline. You've got to stay within the bounds. You go outside of the bounds, you're not going to do well. So an athlete got to discipline himself. It's going to ache sometimes how much they have to practice. But they're after the price. They're after the price. And, of course, the hardworking farmer. We looked at the harvest. Don addressed the harvest of a hardworking fa- farmer, and there's encouragement there. But I, I like to key in, the, in on the word the hardworking. I don't think we realize, at least well, I, I'm a city dweller here. <laughs> I, I've just visited farms. I haven't. Uh, lived on a farm. Maybe some of you have. Maybe out in the kibbutz they, they did farming. It's hard work tilling the soil up early hours, late at night, the dust of the field. The animals need to be fed. They need to be cleaned up after. It's hard work. So what do these three things have in common? Because that's the illustration. Consider what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Because this relates to the Christian life, what God calls us to. When I think of these three illustrations, I think of discomfort. Discomfort. What's discomfort? (laughs) There's a lot of different types of discomfort. I can remember when I first, and I'll talk about this a little later, but when I first got married, I was working as a teamster unloading trucks. 40 footers, 40,000 pounds by hand. Me and another guy and a third guy to pull out the stuff. Boxes coming from overseas Cardboard boxes generate an enormous amount of fiber dust. And as you're taking these boxes stacking eight feet tall onto a pallet in a certain way, all that dust gets all over you and very uncomfortable because you're perspiring. And so that perspiration with that dust, you come out of that truck and you are filthy, very uncomfortable. And you you go get some water while they back in the next one. Santa was making me a 15-inch pie every day, and I would eat it every day. I was burning so many calories. It was great. I can't eat like that now without sort of getting big. Discomfort. Discomfort. I was with my son. We were claw- crawling underneath the house. We had to patch up holes to keep the rats from coming in. Muddy, dirty, cobwebs, you know, rats in there somewhere. Discomfort. Just comfort. Discipline. That's another word that comes to mind when I think of these examples. Dirty jobs. All can be thrown under the word hardship. And Paul is soliciting to Timothy, hey, come join me in the hardship. Come join me in the hardship. You know, it's just like evangelism. Just like evangelism. Sometimes there's no easy way to do a job. We like to find easy ways to do things. I can remember when I worked at that warehouse, J&R Warehouse, the, the most challenging and probably the most uh, the job people like the least is when they said, today, you're back in the rail dock. You got rail dock duty. So the railway line came in the back of the warehouse, and we'd roll up a door, and there'd be a box car, railroad car there. The difference between a box car and a 40 footer, it could hold three or four times as much. So you know you were in for a pretty tough day. Another thing too is what usually came in the rail cars were boxes of laundry detergent. Very heavy pallets up to here, double stacked. And the problem with the rail dock, with the railway lines is that they go pretty fast over some, I guess some rough stuff, because it all starts bouncing and settling, bouncing and settling, and bouncing. When you open up the railway door, the, the boxcar door, they're all crooked, the pallets are all crooked. They're no pallets, they're on skids, they're on uh, cardboard sheets. And we had a special machine called the slip seat machine that would grab that cardboard and pull it onto your fork, for your forks, your forks were big wide plates. And if you could pull them on there, you got that whole pallet stacked on top of those forks. And then you'd go up against the backstop, lower it and push it out on a pallet. And then somebody would come and take the pallet and go put it in the warehouse. The problem is when those loads move and they're like this and your forklift's like this, it doesn't go like this to grab that sheet. So people get frustrated. They want to do it the easy way and they'll grab that and they'll just tear it off. And then you got to hand stack it. And there was this one guy, his name was Churchill, and he gets get so frustrated, he'd just run those forks into those boxes and stab them and lift them up and pull them out and there'd be laundry detergent all over the place, damaged boxes, and then you'd have to restack everything. Trying it to, to do it the easy way, and everybody that went out there for the first time, like myself, we had all these ideas, let's, oh, the easy way to do it, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. You know. And there's always some guy with experience, and he says, we're going to hand stack it, the opening. Uh, you know, have got about nine pallets to hand stack, double stack, it's going to be work. Well, why don't we try this? we got a machine. No, no, we're going to hand stack. And it wasn't until I was, got a little bit of experience back there that I realized that's exactly the best way to do it. Because you've done it the other way so many times. There's no easy way. When the doors are open and it looks like that, we're hand stacking these boxes until we can get the machine inside the box car. And then everything's a piece of cake. You can cut about three or four hours off your job doing it that way. And I'm serious. There was no easy way to do it. It was a dirty job. So you had to tackle it sometimes the hard way, the hard way. And that's like sharing the gospel, isn't it? We like to have nice ways of doing it. We like to invite people for a movie. We like to invite people for dinner. And that's all good. But sooner or later, we're going to have to hand stack some boxes. We're going to have to address the gospel. You know? And a lot of times we fail to do that. We're looking for an easy way to do. We have to, I mean, how how easy is it to tell somebody, you know what, you're going to hell? Oh, that's not easy. That's the hard, that's the hard way. And you might find a more politically correct way of saying it, but it doesn't change the message, does it, you know? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Yeah, that's true, but that's not, that's not what you need to address need to address the fact that, you know what, God is holy, and the Bible says he must judge sin, and if you're not right with God, you're on the highway to hell, you're on the road to destruction, and you need a savior. That's hard, and it takes courage, and it's a dirty job, oftentimes because of the response you get, but that's what God calls us to do. That's what God calls us to do. We have this expression, just do it. Just do it. You know? Are you right with God? Are you sure beyond a shadow of a doubt if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? The Bible says there's only one other place. Oh, I don't believe that. Then you're disagreeing with God. Actually, the Bible says you're calling him a liar. Oh, that's not a popular message. That's not doing it the easy way. But that's what he calls us to. And in this country, fortunately, in this country, it's not going to cost us our life. In many countries, it will. Many countries, you just tell them that you have converted to Christianity and you may be poisoned by your family. We need to get out of our comfort zone because that's what athletes do. That's what farmers do. That's what soldiers do. They get out of their comfort zone. We need to get active in what's uncomfortable until it becomes comfortable. And then we need to do it again and again. What's the again and again part? It's sort of like Andy, um, he's a personal trainer at Equinox. And I learned from him, I learned from Nate, you you, you learn it. It's different than when I used to work out in a gym and train people. These were the exercises, these were the the ones that proved to be most effective, and and you do those for the next five or ten years, you know. They found out that's not all that great for you. you got to do something that's uncomfortable. you got to use new muscles, new combinations of muscles. And when that gets comfortable, you better change it up because you're going to injure yourself too, too, too much of that. Am I right, Michael? Yes, you have to vary your workouts. You have to vary your workouts. you got to get out. You constantly have to work at getting out of your comfort zone. So when you go home, wow, that was that a workout. The word work means something. So we have to get out of our comfort zone. and We have to get active at what is uncomfortable until it becomes comfortable and then... Do it all over again. Work at something that's uncomfortable again until that gets comfortable. And then switch it up. And that's like sharing the gospel. There's many different ways and opportunities to make transitions with the gospel. Some of them might seem awkward. They're uncomfortable. How do I make a transition? Well, try something that's uncomfortable. See how it works. Get comfortable at it. Try something else. Get comfortable at it. Try some... Pretty soon, it's not uncomfortable to share the gospel in many different ways circumstances might change, but you've been trained to ignore how difficult the situation is and get the heart of the issue. I don't have a problem with telling a room full of people that are union members, democratic people. They don't like Christians because they think we're Republicans. I don't have a trouble telling them that I pray for them. I'm preaching this Sunday. I've done it so many times. I just talk to them like they're Christians. And they don't think it's awkward because I'm not awkward saying it. I'm only that way because I say it a lot. And now I need to find a way to change it up, find something that's uncomfortable. We want to be in shape spiritually. I'm in the business of construction. I like construction. And I'm training people out at San Francisco City College. There are people that want to get jobs. And so we're doing pre-apprenticeship training with them. Now, they bring in a lot of different areas of construction so they can offer them things like concrete, electrical, plumbing, glazing, floor covering, painting, taping. And so they get a little sample of everything and then they can pick what they want. Do you know there's people that choose concrete work? Have you ever done concrete work? Angela, I know you've done concrete work. Is it easy? It is hard, heavy, back-breaking, and dirty you know, and, and I've done concrete work for myself, but I, you'll have to excuse me. It's nothing I'd pick, pick to do for a living. There's a lot more fun things to do in construction than concrete work, but it must be done. So I'm glad there's somebody that does it. Construction. Why, do people, why are people attracted to construction? You ever, you ever think about that? I ask people. There's a, there's a few different reasons. People like working with their hands. But the environment itself is what attracts a lot of people to construction, especially in commercial construction. You're working on a high-rise building. You're working with your team. There's camaraderie there. Now, camaraderie is sort of a, a secular word that describes what we would consider fellowship, but it goes beyond that, you see. You can have people you work with, and you can be friendly with them, but that's not the same as camaraderie, especially in construction. And there, there's many areas that, that, that have camaraderie, and, and I'm not saying you can't have it in, um, in more professional fields. But let me show you the use of the word camaraderie in a sentence that I found because I'm looking it up and, it, and, and I want to use it in a sentence, and they gave me a sentence, and it sort of gives the flavor. Camaraderie, the special camaraderie, They're using it in a sentence. The special camaraderie that exists between soldiers that have experienced the crucible of combat together. Have you ever noticed that about those that come back from the battlefield? They're tight with their fellow soldiers, they've been in the crucible together. There's a camaraderie there that's very difficult to match. Their lives were dependent on one another. And when you're in construction or any other field, when you're working hard, hardworking, shoulder to shoulder, when you're carrying one another's load, when you're all in, there's a camaraderie there that people recognize. And that should really describe the fellowship we have in the labor for Christ. When we make sacrifices, when we're a soldier, when we're the farmer, when we're the athlete, Not being in the stands cheering other people on. You know, I I once heard it said about football. I might get it wrong because I don't remember the numbers, but it's 22 players on a football field. Is that right? Okay, good. I won't get it wrong. (laughs) Somebody described football stadium, a football game, as 22 people in dire need of rest. No, 22,000 people in dire need of exercise watching 22 people in dire need of rest. Christianity is is a participation sport. I don't mean to mean irreverent when I say sport, but we're going to talk about athlete. It requires participation. Same thing with a battle. There's some soldiers that sit in Texas, and they're at a console, and they're, and they're looking through a drone's camera at a target. And they get permission to press the button. they press the button. missile goes down, targets, and people die. And then they go get lunch. It's lunchtime. time. then we come back to the console. At the end of the day, we go home. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about you're on the battlefield. You're out there, not in the stadiums, not push-button evangelism. It's getting in the trenches, shoulder-to-shoulder with other people that are willing to do the same. So Paul, this is Paul's life. This is the way he lived. He saw the Lord, and it was worth it to him. And he's calling Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Matter of fact, come join me. Come join me. What? I mean, when you think about think about the relationship they had. The older, younger. Father, son type. Experience with eagerness. And I don't know about you, but in construction, on the battlefield, even an athlete, they look up to those that are out in front. Um, a sergeant. He may not have a high rank, but he could merit the respect of all the troops. They'd follow him anywhere based on his experience, based on his skill as a soldier, based on his concern for his troops. I can remember when I was in high school, I got into diving, and there was this guy. His name was Calvin Bird, and he was a senior, and he was the best diver around. And I was just a little freshman, And I noticed he wore a different color bathing suit than the other guys. He wore a white suit. Everybody else had black suits. And I'm, you know, it really stood out because he was African-American. So wearing a white suit, we're Caucasian, we're black suits. And I asked the coach, why is he wearing a white suit? He said, that white suit's a badge of honor because he got these dives. And of course, my respect for him shot up. And then I saw how well he dived. And I made it a goal that I wanted to be like him. And I started practice on my diving until one day I got a wetsuit, a white suit. And then I, oh, I, went, I passed him up in the uh, dives that I could do because of his example. You know, and I hope my sons go beyond what I've done. And I think Paul's praying that Timothy goes past what he's done. Those examples that go before us, they're important. And Timothy worked side by side with the Apostle Paul, side by side. What kind of respect and love do you think he had for him? But what could motivate him if he was shrinking back at this point, at Paul's circumstances, what could motivate Timothy at this point? What would give him the courage to suffer hardship, the courage to follow Paul even to the point of giving up his life? And I think I find it, as, as we read in this passage, most of you are probably reading from the New King James. Well, I like reading from the New American Standard, but then I realize I better look at the New King James because that's what everybody else is looking at. And it's interesting when you start studying and looking and comparing the versions, and, and let's see if you perceive a difference in the way this comes across to you. This is the New King James. so what you're reading now. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. Remember that he was raised from the dead. Now here's the new American standard. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. In other words, remember that Jesus was raised from the dead, versus remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Is there a difference to you? There is to me. There is to me. And it comes out in a story. I think it comes out in a story. And the difference is this. When you listen to this story, think of two ways of saying it. The fellow, um, Richard Winters, Lieutenant and the young lieutenant, his name was Richard Winters. Now remember, beforehand, I'm going I'm to phrase it this way, and then as you read the story, you, you see if you see the difference. Remember that Richard Winters walked down the center of the street. Now I say, remember Richard Winters. Okay? Now listen to the story. And, and this, I believe, is the motivation that we should have. And I think this is the motivation that the Apostle Paul is holding up to the Lord, to uh, Timothy. On June 12, 1944, just six days after D-Day, in World War II, a young lieutenant named Richard Winters led his men to the outskirts of Corentin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. As the officer in charge of East Germany of the 101st Airborne, he was tasked to clear the large French town of its German defenders. It would be a small battle but it played a significant role in the massive effort to rid the world of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. As Winters led his company up the road toward the town, the company started taking machine gun fire from a German MG42. The men instinctively dived for cover into into the ditches on either side of the road and stayed there. They froze. Not only was the success of the mission in jeopardy, but the men were easy targets for the enemy machine gun and the sniper fire. What happened next proved to be the turning point of the battle for Corentin. It's the stuff legends are made from. Lieutenant Winters went into the middle of the road and with bullets hissing past him, started yelling at his troops to get up out of the ditches and engage the enemy. His words, coupled with heroic action, motivated the men to get up, get in the fight, and gain a decisive victory over the Germans. Winners' disregard for personal safety in his effort to save his men from certain death didn't just earn him a medal. His actions earned him the love, respect, and admiration of his men. They followed him faithfully from Corentin through the nightmarish Battle of the Bulge and on to the triumph at Hitler's eagle's nest. Soldiers willing to follow men like that men who demonstrate acts of self-sacrifice in the most harrowing of circumstances. How much more should we as Christians follow the one who endured suffering and death to rescue us from the most terrifying fate of all and eternity in hell? See, now if I say remember winters, Lieutenant Winters walked down the middle of the street, it's a little bit different than saying remember, wi- remember winters, isn't it? Because it's, remember winters, stands for a lot more than him walking down the street. So here in these two passages, one says, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Remember, that's, that's an act. That's, that's a, it, it happened at a point in time. He was raised from the dead. Now remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That speaks to me of a lot more. He's alive. He conquered death. And there's more. <laughs> there's more. We're not just looking back at an event, we're looking at a person, and it includes the event and all the significance of the event. And this is what he's encouraging Timothy with. Remember, we serve a risen Lord. He's gained the victory. We're in the war. Battles may be lost, but the war is guaranteed not to be because of him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for which I suffer hardship." In the New American Standard. Hardship. New King James says, I suffered trouble as an evildoer. Hardship speaks to me. Difficulties of all types. Imprisoned, even to imprisoned as a criminal, which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. He was willing to be put in prison as a criminal. And what did he do there? The word of God spread even more. The word of God spread even more. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. There are many people out there that are chosen. New King James uses the word elect. and I know we, 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 we tend to shy away from that word. But they're chosen unto eternal life. And many have not heard the gospel yet or heard the gospel at the right time in their life. And this is what drove Paul, because the Savior loves lost souls. So Paul loves lost souls. As a matter of fact, he uses the word according to my gospel. He owns it. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he has so owned it, he could call it my gospel, my gospel. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. There's nothing more important, nothing more significant on this earth for us to be involved in. The question is, are we willing to get outside of our comfort zone? Are we willing to go like Timothy and follow Paul, suffer hardship, suffer hardship? for hardship. Remember Jesus Christ. I know the time is moving on and I haven't covered all my verses. But I, I just want to close with this and show a video and ask this question. How far, after what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, for you, for me, how far am I willing to go What hardship am I willing to endure to go after a lost soul? We live in a world, and I I listen to this, I see it, you know, uh, movie stars making plugs for giving to these organizations that save a pet, save the seals. And I'm thinking, there's a big difference between animals, and those for which Christ died. But if you see what people will do to save an animal, maybe we might be motivated by Christ's love for lost souls to do even more for lost souls. So let's show the video, and let's see what somebody's willing to do to rescue an animal. That's an ice-covered lake or pond. Dog fell through. <laughs> That's тут that's cold, это are we willing to do do He jumped into that frozen pond, broke through the ice, used his elbows to smash through all the way to that dog. You think we can do that? Could we walk across the street? Could we walk across an office cubicle to the next one? We should. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we think of how far you came and how low you stooped to reach us. We're thankful. We pray this morning that you'd give us a heart after your own heart, a heart after the Apostle Paul, that would respond to your call to suffer hardship, to reach those that still need to hear about you. We pray that you would help us to search our heart and ask ourselves, what are we willing to do? How far are we willing to go? to please you out of gratitude for what you've done for us. We pray in your name, amen.